Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robert Tosu. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest is Jonathan Deutsch, Professor of Culinary Arts and Science at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Jonathan is a chef and author and founder of the Drexel Food Lab, a research lab focused on food, product design, and culinary innovation. Jonathan tells us about the Food Lab's focus on sustainability, health, and equitable access. We explore the continuum of engineered food to well-crafted food to artistically creative food. And finally, we discuss the historical aspects of men at the barbecue grill. Enjoy. Last episode was fashion, and this episode is food. We are happy to welcome Jonathan Deutsch to the show. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks. Glad to be here. Welcome. I'd like to maybe start off talking a little bit about the food lab, because I think that's something, uh, you know, I kind of know what goes on in kitchens and, or at least I think I do, my kitchen and restaurants, but I'm not sure what happens in a food lab. So maybe focus a little bit on that and your work at Drexel uh, just to kind of get us going. And then we'll, we'll get into some of the other themes of the show. It's a great question, and I think you're not alone in not really knowing what goes on in a food lab. And it's a challenge recruiting students who certainly know what a chef is. They've been to restaurants, they uh, watch food TV, but often they don't know what food product developers are or research chefs or supply chain and sourcing experts. And um, the food industry is vast. Um, it's our our largest and, and our most vital. All of the creative work you talk about on the show is impossible if we're starving, right? So getting food to people safely and accessibly, affordably is, is the most important thing in our society, I think, along with water and air and, and other other vital things that we need to do all the all of the fun artist and engineer creative work that, that can follow, right? But but if we're worried about where our next meal is going to come from or whether it will kill us or whether we can afford to eat it and do the things we want to do, all of the other all of the other uh, aspects of, of society and culture go away. So we really try to emphasize that uh, you know while the while the culinary skills are important and we want food to taste good, um, there's a lot more to it than just making things flame up and, and look cool, um, that there's, there's a lot of science and culture and, and history uh, and art all, all really working together. So I started the Food Lab in 2014 with a, a really phenomenal uh, then undergraduate student, uh, Ali Zeitz, who's now a, a research chef herself. And Drexel is very unusual in being a research university known actually for its engineering and, and business programs and, and others that had a culinary program. And there was a previous provost, uh, Mark Greenberg, who recruited me, who really hired me to answer this question of what does it mean to be a research university with a culinary program? Is there even such a thing as culinary research? You know, if we're just teaching people how to cook, there are people who do it better than, than we do. And uh, culinary programs are notoriously expensive to operate, you know, small class sizes and food and 
bureaucrats don't like risk and uh there's there's risk all over there's knives and fire and slippery floors <laughs> and alcohol and things that make uh the the suits head spin so if if we're going to do this thing you know we have to do it uh aligned with the research mission of the university was was sort of the mandate i had a background as a research chef and research chefs are people who work at the intersection of culinary arts and food science. So I'm not a scientist. I know enough food science to sort of get me into trouble. I'm also not a restaurant chef. I've done that before. I'm not particularly passionate about it. But, you know, I know enough cooking and, and have enough culinary skills to, to kind of get the job done there. And so at that intersection, there's a lot of work that really balances the, the art and the science. So um, taking something restaurant quality and converting it into a packaged food or taking something that's the vision of a chef and making it consistent and replicable across hundreds of locations of food service uh, operations or restaurants. You know, it would, it would kind of be really disappointing if you went to your favorite chain restaurant in one state and it tasted nothing like that same version in another state. You would you'd think, oh, what this, you know, something's wrong here. So building in those systems, building in the supply chain, um, building in the SOPs so that someone who um, isn't necessarily the, the most highly trained uh, you know, culinary school graduate or is from a, a culture different from the food that they're cooking can sort of piece it together from the, the components is the job of the research chef. It's a, not a very well understood profession and it's even somewhat new that we even have uh, an association called the Research Chefs Association and credentialing called Certified Research Chef and Certified Culinary Scientist. All of that when I was coming up was just uh, sort of semi-retired hotel and restaurant chefs who said, you know, my back hurts, my knees hurt, I can't be on my feet all day with a bunch of 20-year-old line cooks, let me consult and do some R&D and do some other stuff. And, and um now it's its own uh, sort of full-fledged profession. I read on your Drexel Food Lab page that you started with three principles, do good, feed well, keep going. And I think those are amazing, admirable principles. But I can imagine some food labs, let's say at Pepsi, have different goals and missions, you know, how to make potato chips taste better, for example. Can you tell us about those goals uh, and uh, how you've achieved them or how it's evolved since you started six, seven years ago? Yeah, they really came about through um, some naive assumptions on our part and some failures early on. I have a background, as I said, as a research chef and worked for the sort of the big bad food industry, um, big, you know, multinational consumer packaged good companies. And I had this naive notion that, that the Drexel Food Lab would be a Robin Hood model. And the idea was we would do contracts for the kinds of work you're describing make chips in new flavors or make soda bubblier or, or do those kinds of revenue generating work and then engage our students in projects that were important to them. Sustainability, health promotion, access, things like therapeutic foods for uh, health conditions or food for famine relief or food insecurity, those, those kinds of projects. And what we quickly learned was that Robin Hood model didn't work. Uh, the, the big bad food industry actually doesn't want to be the big bad food industry. They want to be the big good food industry. 
and really don't need our support or the support of our students to do what they're already doing. You know, they have R&D teams that can make chips and new flavors and make soda bubblier and do all those kinds of things. Where they needed help and where they really wanted to tap into the student creativity and energy and um, kind of mindset was around these issues, sustainability, health promotion, and access. And so we quickly sort of pivoted from this Robin Hood approach to saying all of our work is just going to fall under one of these umbrellas. So we do turn down some things that are really fun projects. You know, um, we don't do a lot of alcohol work, for example. We don't do a lot of, you know, ultra processed food work, puffs and extruded stuff. And we don't do a lot of functional things like newly discovered uh, antioxidant rich something that you could stir into your um, morning smoothie. Um, we tend to do a lot of culinary projects that are focused on in sustainability, uh, either celebrating the, the food properties of very sustainable, renewable kinds of ingredients, or doing a lot of work around food waste prevention and minimization, upcycling, taking co-streams or byproducts from other manufacturing and making them into new food products has been a big portfolio for us. Therapeutic foods, using foods as alternative to to drugs to either reduce or obviate the need for um, prescriptions in some cases, and access. So sodium reduction, sugar reduction, and cost reduction, making better food available for more people. We're really focused on the help of people, planet, and economies. So mm, terrific. Yeah. And I imagine you're you're feeding them into industries where they may also, as I say, inside the uh, the big good food companies to try to even change it from the inside a little bit. Though obviously always profits are, are, are a big part of the motive. Absolutely. Profits are a big part of the motive, but consumer expectations have changed, right? Mm -hmm. People want to know where their food comes from. They want to know that they're doing good. They want to know that the employees are getting a fair wage and that the suppliers are being paid fairly. And so profits are not necessarily at odds with social values as they might once have been. For our show theme, the artist and engineer, and uh, this is a profession, Tony and I have bounced back and forth, the food industry, chefs as a both engineer, we always use engineer uh, kind of softly in terms of you can be a scientist or a chef could be a, uh, a scientist or a chemist almost, but there's also a very creative artistic side to it. So that's how we kind of thought about this. You even alluded to this a little bit in our chemistry call saying, yeah, we, we've almost gotten to the point where you can have a pill that you take and gives you most of the nutrients and whatnot that you need, but we haven't gone there. And I was kind of, why do you think that is in terms of, you know, on a psychological, personal, what people want kind of experience, which maybe speaks to our theme of like something that's very functional, hits all your needs or something that's about pleasure and expression and, and other parts? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and one I think chefs grapple with as well. You know, cooking, especially restaurant cooking, uh, is a horribly inefficient model, right? I'm going to buy a wide inventory to offer a comprehensive menu of all perishable goods, right? We're not talking about hardware that could sit on a shelf for a year. And I'm going to 
pay all that cost up front, right? All of the food, all of the prep of that food, the labor associated with it, the space, the dining room, I have zero dollars coming in the door. And then I'm going to open the door and hope for you to come in. And then when you request something, I'm going to make you whatever you want within reason that I can make. And you're probably, if you're like many guests, even if I give you a menu of 30 or 40 items, you're going to say, I want it modified to my particular taste and I want to even change it further, right? So it's a horribly inefficient model to get food into people, but we persist in asking for it and wanting it that way. And the industry persists in providing it that way. So I think that's a long-winded way of, of saying, you know, that food is so much more than nutrients, right? It's, it's commensality, it's culture, it's ritual, it's pleasure. And I know there are people who eat to live and um, are very happy to have uh, some sort of, you know, supplement or shake with all of their vital nutrients. And, and in fact, see it as a boon that they don't have to quote unquote waste time, you know, shopping and cooking and waiting for their food to be delivered and so on. They could just down this, this concoction. And, and I think there's the fantasy um, that we can eliminate the work of food and just take the pleasure that dates back decades, if not centuries. Um, you know, that sort of Jetsons, you know, you're going to press the button and out comes your delicious food. And we even have robotic chefs now that are, that are doing, you know, literally that. But I think there's pleasure in cooking, there's pleasure in the ritual, there's pleasure in the tactile. And the, the closest analogy that, that I can come up with on this artist engineer sort of continuum is, is craftspeople, right? Craftspeople are not avant-garde artists. There are chefs who are avant-garde artists and many people don't enjoy eating their food. They may be uh, like looking at avant-garde art. You may appreciate it. You may be provoked by it. You may be angered by it. You, you're going to feel something, but it may not feel, the feeling may not be pleasure, right? Or it may not be all pleasure. And we also don't want the engineered food that is, you know, designed just to be metabolized as efficiently as possible or, or give our body exactly what we need and to get us to the perfect weight and the perfect musculature and, and all of those things. And, and in, in between, there's this craft, right, where you're um, using traditional methods, you're combining them with new methods, you're understanding the science, the chemical and, and physical and biological properties of the material. And you're doing this consistently, just as you would buy a set of hand-blown glassware and each one is slightly different. You know, you're not, it's not going to be a total mishmash of shapes and colors and sizes. Um, there's going to be some consistency, right? And, and I think food is, is very much in that, in that vein of, of really a skilled craft that combines all of these things. And, you know, I, I don't see it so different from potters know the, the science of the ceramic and brewers know the science of the beer. But yes, both those things could be made in a factory and, and are, but they can also be made in, in ways with a lot of human intervention and also leaving a lot to the natural elements, you know, the material and the variability in the material. And you mentioned kind of short history, a few decades of restaurant style experiences, but 
I thought you would actually say something in terms of millennia. I mean, kind of sharing food together is a, is a biological human experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And it goes back millennia, as does fast food, by the way. You know, people think of this as a new phenomenon, but there are um, early uh, Roman, essentially steam tables, tables with holes in them uh, under which a fire would burn. And they would put pots, you know, earthenware pots in those holes and keep stews and beans and all sorts of things warm. And people would pay a, a little bit of money and get, get a meal when they didn't have time to cook or it wasn't efficient to cook. So, you know, a lot of the things that we think are, are new social problems are, are actually, you know, millennia old. And, and conversely, a lot of things that we um, think used to happen probably didn't. You know, an, an example is this nostalgia for the family meal. You know, we're all so busy, we can't sit down and enjoy a meal together and talk together like we used to. And, you know, the reality is, except for the elite uh, who probably had um, servants or enslaved people or, um, you know, other supports to make that happen, you know, most people were busy working and cooking was not a 30 minute meal. It was a few hours of grinding corn and grinding wheat and running around and doing doing complicated things to get the food on the table. So it, it probably didn't happen the way the way we like to think it, it might have. In terms of history, I know one of your books, I'm going to jump over to just because it's kind of fascinating. And I was reading a blurb about it was the history of barbecue. And you mentioned uh, it goes back, I imagine, uh, millennia, uh, once we realized that we could uh, didn't have to eat raw things. And But one of the pieces I thought was just fascinating was that barbecuing um, is thought of as this exclusively masculine activity. You know, and I've, uh, I've, I've quote unquote, manned the grill a couple of times in my life. I mean, why was it or is that, you know, I mean, it is now in our society, but was it always the case? It's often been the case in many cultures, although, you know, there are no, um, no rules and things are changing often. There are a few historical factors that, that seem to lead to this. The biggest one, and, and I spent time on my dissertation on this topic, there are um, a lot of gender stereotypes or gendered stereotypes about cooking. Men grill outside, women cook inside, you know, men do the meat and women do the sides. And there are assumptions made about, you know, sort of all sorts of pontification about why this is this may be the case. And uh, what it really comes down to is frequency. Barbecue is a rare special occasion thing. Like a lot of rare special occasion things, it becomes very showy and performative and not something you can do every night. And especially if you're doing it on wood and you know slow smoking and 10, 12 hours. So it tends to be less, less a masculine thing than the person who is not the primary food provider in most households. If you're cooking every day, whether you're whatever your gender, if you're cooking every day, you tend to be concerned with things like health, and nutrition and cost and variety and pleasing everyone at the table and sort of making making as little work as you can out of a pretty significant undertaking of, of providing a meal, right? If you cook infrequently, 
whatever your gender, you can do a lot of showmanship and you can do a lot of staying up all night to make sure that the uh, 20-hour brisket gets the right level of smoke over that, that period. And eating a, a plate that if you ate every day, you, you wouldn't live long, you know, meat and sides and, and things that, that really should be a once a week or a once a month or kind of meal. And so that's really what I focused on in that work. And because women in this country and in many countries are the primary food providers, then men sort of have the luxury of doing that kind of extreme sort of cooking, right? Where, where it takes hours and hours and, and you're eating really rich fatty meats that you wouldn't normally eat uh, on a daily basis and, and, and really bringing people together to, to celebrate those foods and those flavors. Mm-hmm. So maybe taking it at a more macro level, which I think you had alluded to in the uh, discussion around the lab, they, you know, we've covered a little of the, the personal uh, longings or cravings, but you know, food has such an impact on society. Uh, it allows the society to function. If all you're worried about is your next meal, you're not going to have a lot of time to do other things. So where do you see the direction of, of food going in the food industry, food supplies? What, what are the trends that you think are kind of interesting to, to keep an eye on? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the work of our lab is not coincidental. I think the, the portfolios that we have around sustainability, health, and access are, are there strategically because those are the, the issues. So on sustainability, I think we're going to see a big push against food waste and surplus food and excess food. At the same time, trying to sort of adjust our food supply for a growing population. So most people don't realize that despite widespread rates of food insecurity and hunger, we actually produce more than enough calories for everyone on the planet already. Yeah. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a capacity issue, it's a distribution and equity issue. Uh, and one of the problems associated with that is, by some estimates, between 33 and 40% of food is wasted that's produced. So we're producing too much food, we're wasting it, at the same time we're not getting it to the people who need it the most. Um, and compounding that is that food waste, wasted food, is the biggest controllable contributor to climate change. So agriculture is our largest consumer of water and fossil fuels. We're producing 30, 40, 50% more food than we need with those resources. We're moving it around the world. We're storing it in, under refrigeration or freezing temperatures in many cases. We're processing it. We're discarding it and we're fermenting it in compost or landfill, which is generating even more greenhouse gases. And at the same time, we're growing corn to make ethanol and using farmland just to make fuel. At the same time, this food is fermenting and releasing gases into the atmosphere. And even though almost all organic matter could be fermented and biodigested for energy and compost, organic matter is still the largest component of landfill, where it just sits between sheets of plastic and, and gives off gas and 
I grew up near Scranton, Pennsylvania, beautiful Scranton, which is landfill country. And you see the, the you know, methane flames just burning, burning those gases uh, 24-7. So it's, it's really shocking and dysfunctional. And I think where people are waking up to it, there's an Upcycled Food Association, which I was the, the founding president of the Upcycled Food Foundation. And a lot of that work came out of, of the work in the Drexel Food Lab. And so there are now, we went from about nine to about 170 members who are making food products from food that would otherwise have been wasted. So things like vegetable peels from fresh cut produce or um, okara, which is the, the pulp of soy milk production. So the, the really fiber and protein rich remnants uh, that are left in the press, you know, those, those kinds of foods. And we started with all startup companies and sort of socially conscious entrepreneurs, and we still have them, and they're the sort of heart and soul of the of the organization. But we also had members like Dole and Del Monte and Mondelez and big, you know, multinational food companies who um, are are seeing that this is the future. That they none of us will be here if we don't if we don't fix this. So sustainability for sure. Mm-hmm. health and health promotion, and then access, making sure as many people have access to this food as possible and making sure that's done in an equitable way as possible. Right. Yeah. I think this, um, that's, that's all, that's amazing. All those, those ideas are amazing. I think this idea of social good in, in a lot of industries is, is, is very topical now uh, and maybe a, a permanent change. Well, this has been terrific. I want to, I really enjoy this because it was, it was unlike any of our other topics, but uh, learned a lot. So this was great. Thank you, Jonathan, for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.